Matthew records in his gospel in chapter 16, Jesus asking this question to the disciples. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I think one of the most important questions we can ever be asked and answer is who is Jesus? I think that's the reason Jesus asked his disciples this question. And what we saw was not everybody knew who Jesus was. Some saw him as a prophet. Some saw him, you know, as John the Baptist, Elijah. I mean, it just, everybody had their thoughts. But the Spirit revealed to Peter that he was the Son of God. Um, when I had the opportunity to to preach on this Palm Sunday, um, I had several thoughts go through my head because the recounting of the triumphal entry has intrigued me for years because there's an interesting contrast that we see from the text that David read just a few minutes ago and what uh, happens merely a week later in front of Pilate. So in John 12, 12 through 13, he said the next day a large crowd came to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or even the King of Israel. So you have people who came out in opposition to what the Pharisees wanted, what the scribes and the teachers wanted, what the Roman government would want, what their local governor would want. And they were worshiping someone other than Caesar. They were worshiping someone that the Pharisees did not want them to worship. And, and risking retribution from the government, risking retribution from being kicked out of the synagogue, they came and they worshipped Jesus. They, they cried Hosanna to his name. They called him the king of Israel. Now, a short time later, after Jesus is betrayed, after Jesus is arrested, after Jesus is beaten, we read this in Luke 23, starting at verse 18. Now, now keep going. Jesus has been falsely trialed, tried. He has been beaten and flogged. And now Pilate is bringing him for the people. And he wants to release Jesus because Pilate finds no fault in him. And starting in verse 18, it says, But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. 
and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released to them the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So on one hand, we have a crowd who is singing Hosanna to the king of the Jews on one day. And then some week later, they're saying, crucify him. No one in that, no one is recorded in that crowd going, hey, but wait, that's the king of the Jews. Wait, that's the guy we were laying down palm branches to last week. How does this happen? How is one week the crowd defying the Romans and the scribes and the Pharisees and celebrating a coming king, a Messiah? And merely a week later, the crowd is calling crucify. No one said, release Jesus. What happened to the crowd? What did they see at the triumphal entry that they didn't see at Pilate's request? This is what I think happened. They weren't looking for the arrested Jesus. They weren't looking for the beaten Jesus. They were looking for the King Jesus. And sometimes we miss Jesus because we're looking for the wrong Jesus. We see the same thing with Mary at the tomb. John twenty eleven tells us this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went and she stooped inside to look in the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. How did Mary miss that this was Jesus? How did she mistake him for someone else? It's because Mary went to the tomb looking for the broken Jesus. She went looking for the beaten Jesus. She went looking for the dead Jesus. She wasn't looking for the risen Jesus. And we do this. Have you not ever run into somebody where you don't expect them to be? Maybe you're on vacation. You run into somebody you see around work and it's like, you know, I don't. That person kind of looks familiar, but they start talking to you and you're like, you know, and they're like, oh, oh, that's who you are. I'd heard, you know, there's there's this people joke about how silly the whole Superman Clark Kent thing is. Like, how do how do people not realize that the guy who's Superman is just the same guy as Clark Kent without the glasses? And I heard an interview with Christopher Reeves. And he said that when he was, and he, he played Superman in the 80s, by the way. And he said that when he was, he was, you know, some of y'all, it was before you were born. But they, he said that when he was on sets and he was dressed as Superman and he would get finished shooting, they were on location, he would go to a restaurant or he would go to do something, people would come up to him and say, Mr. Reeves, can I get your autograph? Mr. Reeves, can I take a a picture with you? Mr. Reeves, can I do this? 
And he said, but amazingly, when they were shooting scenes on location where he was dressed as Clark Kent, and he went to go get lunch, or he went to go do something, no one ever came up to him and said, Mr. Reeves. They did not recognize him as the actor when he was... Because, you know, when they saw the Superman suit, they're like, oh, wait a minute. But when they just saw somebody walk around, they're like, well, that's probably somebody that just looks like him. Um, I was joking with Sam before service. Um, I remember we were at a church service together one time, and this song starts to play during worship. And it's a very distinct song, because I grew up... Uh, loving 60s and 70s music. That's kind of just what my parents had around the house all the time. Um, I used to love to listen to the oldie station. I still love to listen to the oldie station because it's 80s music, but um, which that hurts me. But this song starts to play, and I look over at Sam because he was sitting next to me. I said, Sam, is this? And he's like, no. And I go, man, I really think it is. And he's like, there is, there is no way. And then the singer starts to bow out that song, Come On People Now, Smile On Your Brother. And Sam just looks at me and goes, yep, it was. But like, even though it was a distinct song, neither one of us expected that to be the song that was played. So even though the, the, the tune was familiar, we were like, that can't be it. But, but that's what we do. The crowd missed Jesus because they were looking for the second coming Jesus. Mary missed Jesus because she was looking for the dead Jesus. And we miss Jesus. We often worship a domesticated Jesus that we've created in our own image. David rightly reminded us a couple of weeks back that we don't get to pick and choose which attributes of God we want to magnify and which attributes of God we want to downplay. But I think that's what we do with Jesus. We view Jesus through our politics. And we want a Jesus who agrees with our political views. We view Jesus through our sociology. And we want a Jesus who agrees with our view of sociology. We look for a Jesus who is shaped by our worldview and by our experience. We say things like, I know the Bible says but. Or we say things like, would Jesus really... There's a there's a game that probably goes by many names. Sam always called it Strip or Scrap, where you uh, take something and and like a, a saying of Benjamin Franklin or some other pithy saying, and you throw it out there. It sound and maybe it sounds like something I was saying. Then the whole point of the game is: is this scripture or is this something else? And We catch ourselves looking for the Jesus who says God helps those who help himself and not looking for the Jesus who says, Come all ye who are weary and heavy laden. We miss Jesus because we are looking for the wrong Jesus. I'm going to endeavor to help us answer this question, Who is Jesus? Biblically. Jesus asked his disciples this question because it is an important question for us to answer. And I'm going to ask you, just think in your mind. I don't want the church answer, but just think to yourself, when you think of Jesus, who is the Jesus you see? What characteristics, what attributes 
when you're looking for Jesus, do you think you're looking for? This sermon is really birthed in a journey I've been on to find the real Jesus. I don't know what may blind you to the real Jesus, but I can tell you for me, it was this question. Does Jesus like me? I know Jesus loves me, but I often ask the question, does Jesus like me? Um, I internalize my trials and my suffering. And when bad things happen, the Jesus I was looking for was like, Jesus, why are you mad at me? Jesus, what did I do to you? And I totally missed all of the teaching that the Bible has on suffering. And suffering, as James would tell us, as Jesus himself tells us, as Paul tells us, draws us closer to Christ. It makes us more Christ-like. As a matter of fact, we've been talking about the book of James and our GC, and, and as such, we've been talking about suffering and trials. And it struck me that take, for example, the woman with an issue of blood. Had she not suffered under that, she would have never met Jesus. She met Jesus because the doctors couldn't help her, because she'd exhausted everything. And she heard about Jesus, and she wanted healing. It was her suffering that drawed her to Jesus. But suffering can make us miss Jesus. There was a, a pastor in my community in Clay who had a very thriving church, but it was a church that taught if you had enough faith, nothing bad ever happened. It skipped over all the teaching on suffering and all the teaching on trials. And one day the pastor's child died of cancer, and that pastor immediately walked away from the faith because it it didn't line up with the Jesus he was looking for. Ephesians 3, 7-9 through 9 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul spoke of the unsearchable riches of Christ, and I will endeavor to scratch the surface. There's there's a few things we're going to look at this morning, and it's by no means an exhaustive list, but it's the things that I felt the Lord wanted us to hear this morning. We're going to look at who God says Jesus is. We're going to look at who Jesus said Himself is, whatever the correct English way to say that, what Jesus said about Himself who John said Jesus is, and who Paul said Jesus is. So what what did God say about Jesus? In Isaiah 9-6, through the prophet Isaiah, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He first spoke of His humanity. Unto us a child is born. John 1.14 puts it this way, the Word became flesh. John 11.35 reminds us that Jesus wept. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself out, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus grew tired. He experienced dread. He faced frustration. And he showed empathy. It is this experience of humanity that allows the writer of Hebrews to tell us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things we are, yet without sin. Jesus was fully human. But at the same time, God spoke of His deity. Unto us a Son is given. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, you and me, that He gave His one and only Son, that we should not perish, but have everlasting life if we believe. John 1.1.5 tells us, 1.1-5 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. He was not merely a man, and He was not merely God. But this fully man, fully God, allows Him not only to be our high priest, but to be our advocate. But more on that in a minute. The next thing that God tells us is His ways are higher than our ways. And His name shall be Wonderful Counselor. Imagine a counselor who not only knows how everything works, but truly knows this. Jesus, I had a fight with my wife. He says, I know. I was there. I know what you said. I know what you thought. Now let's talk about what you need to do. Think about that. How many times do we go to counselors and they are limited in what they can do, but this counselor knows us fully and he knows everything fully. But not only that, he gives unearthly wisdom He tells us things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He tells us, humble yourself and I will exalt you. He tells us to take joy in trials. He tells us to take joy in persecution for His name's sake. He tells us to be peacemakers. He tells us to be meek. He tells us to mourn our sin. All things that go against conventional wisdom But His wisdom isn't earthly wisdom. James 3, 17-18 tells us, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The counsel He gives is countercultural. It goes against conventional wisdom, but ultimately it's because His ways are higher than our ways. But He's not only a counselor of great wonder, but He also has the power to change us because He is the mighty God 
and He is the everlasting Father who was and is and always will be. For His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Remember what we read in, in John 1, 5, 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made. He did this at the beginning of time. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus made water, and He made the fact that we would thirst for water, He knew that one day He would be sitting in a well with a woman who was ashamed of everything she did, and she would come to that well because of her thirst. But He would be able to tell her about living water, and she would never thirst again. But even more than that, think about when Jesus created the trees. Actually, let's not even get there yet. When Jesus created man and woman, at the time He created them, He knew we wouldn't even get past the first generation before they fell. And with that in mind, when He created the trees, He knew that one day He Himself would hang on a tree to bring about our redemption. We have not just a counselor who understands us, but we have one that is powerful and mighty to make cha- to change us and is everlasting so that He was able before the foundation of time to set into motion our salvation. He was not taken off guard by our fall and He is not taken off guard by our sin because He was there in the beginning. And because He is a wonderful counselor, and because He is a mighty God, and because He is the everlasting Father, He is the bringer of peace. And His name shall be Prince of Peace. Romans 5, 6-11 through For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, He would dare even to die. But God shows His love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus brought us peace with God. We were His enemies. And, and as I told you, as, as I would struggle, does Jesus like me? That's, I think that was the final straw. God said to me, you are insulting me by asking that question, because you know that while you were still my enemy, I made peace with you. So that's who God told us through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus is. Who did Jesus say Jesus is? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is gentle and lowly. Charles Spurgeon says in, well says, he doesn't say it now, he used to say, in all of the Scripture, this is the one time that Jesus says what his own heart is. And he says it's gentle and lowly, but what does that mean to us? The point of saying Jesus is gentle is to remind us he is meek, humble, gentle, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And as we're gonna, we're gonna talk about, that is the difference in the penitent and the unpenitent is, Do we answer the call to come, or do we not? The point of of saying Jesus is lowly is that He is accessible for all His resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, His supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. Gentle and lowly. This, according to Jesus' own testimony, is His very heart. This is who Jesus is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, and willing. If we were asked to say only one thing about Jesus, we would do well to honor his own teaching of what he said his heart is, gentle and lowly. But lest we get the mistaken idea that Jesus is mushy and frothy, let's go back a couple of verses and see what he said of the impenitent. Woe to you, Shorzan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? Will you be brought down? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. To the penitent, he is gentle and lowly. His heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sin, our suffering, our insecurity, our doubts, our anxieties, or our failures. To the impenitent, though, it is otherwise. The sole difference is do we answer his call to come and enter his peace? He is gentle and lowly, and as such, he invites us into his peace. What did John say about who Jesus is? John 1.14 and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
We need to understand Jesus is full of grace and He is full of truth. He is not half grace and He's not half truth. He does not ebb and flow between truth and grace. It's not like, okay, David needs 80% truth and 20% grace. Heather needs 80% grace and 20% truth. He's like, David needs 100% grace and 100% truth. Heather needs 100% grace and 100% truth. Kevin needs 100% grace and 100% truth. We all need 100% grace and 100% truth. To the woman at the well, he said to her when he asked her to go get her husband, and she said, I don't have one. And he responded, you are right when you say you do not have a husband. In fact, the man you are living with now is not your husband. That was truth. Come drink the living water. That was grace. To the woman caught in adultery, when he said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, and the men left, and he said to her, who condemns you? And she said, no one. And he said, neither do I condemn you. That was grace. Go and sin no more. That was truth. When the man with an infirmity of 38 years was at the pool of Bethesda, he said, take up your mat and walk. That was grace. Then it says, he sought the man out. That was also grace. Then he said to the man, you have been healed. Go and sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. That is truth. As David is prone to saying, grace without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without grace is brutality. And we need to remember that. Sometimes we, we want to give somebody all truth and for whatever reason we don't, we don't show them grace. That is brutal. But sometimes we think, oh, this person just needs grace and we feel bad about telling them the truth, but that is hypocrisy. I want to close with what Paul said about Jesus. And this, this is kind of where my journey began to come to a culmination of seeing who Jesus really is. Philippians 4.11-13 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now this is one of those coffee cup verses. And we only fit that last part on the poster or the coffee cup or the little cross stitch frame thing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in context, this isn't, I need to go win a basketball game. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to go win an election. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to get a promotion at work. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got a really hard test, or I'm taking the ACT or the SAT, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I only slept two hours last night. I can get up and go today because I in context, I can do all things through Christ. I can go through need through Christ who strengthens me. I can be brought low through Christ who strengthens me. I can abound through Christ who strengthens me. I can face plenty through Christ who strengthens me. 
I can face hunger through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus is enough. That's what Paul's telling us. Jesus is enough. But do we believe that? Do we see Him as enough when we are hungry, when we are in need, when we are in pain, or when we are being persecuted? But at the same time, do we see Him as enough when we're well-fed, when we're living in excess, when we're in health, and when we're well-liked? Someone once said, it's easy to say Jesus is enough when we are in our warm beds and the front door is locked. It is a totally different to say Jesus is enough when you're sleeping in a ratty sleeping bag under an overpass. Do we believe Jesus is enough? Sam, you can go ahead and come up and... David, if you're ready, just a minute. I've got one last passage I want to read and then ask you guys a question. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who were sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who would come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment follows the one trespass brought by condemnation. But the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul reminds us that Jesus isn't just enough. Jesus is more than enough. This verse 20, I want to read this again. Now that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This language Paul uses, much more, abounded for many, abundance of grace, much more, abounded all the more. There is no wall of sin or suffering that can be built that the grace of God cannot overwhelm it. There is no valley or canyons so wide that the grace of God cannot overcome it.
And so as David comes to tell us how we can respond in prayer, I want us to keep that in mind, that Jesus is gentle and lowly, and He's calling us to bring our weariness, the things we've done, and our heavy ladenness, the things that have been heaped upon us, and come and enter His rest, because He is more than enough.